Hey guys, Michael Cohen here, welcoming you back to another episode of Cohen's Corner. Thank you very much for tuning in to today's show. As always, you can find episodes of this podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to podcasts. If you happen to be listening from an Apple device, we encourage you to leave a star rating, leave a review, preferably five stars if you like the show, to let us know what you think, because all of that positive exposure helps gain listeners, and the more listeners we have, the easier it is for me to attract guests that I think you guys will enjoy. Today's guest is an awesome one. I'm so glad you guys are tuning in. I think so far this was probably the the, the best episode in terms of of crazy stories and fun insight and unique anecdotes into NFL franchises. And that's because Jeep Christ, a longtime NFL coach, is just an amazing storyteller. A really, really smart guy, graduated from Princeton, broke into the NFL in 1991 as the director of research and quality control coach for the Chicago Bears, which means his first boss was Mike Ditka. He spent a few years with the Arizona Cardinals from 96 to 98, coaching tight ends first and then switching over to quarterbacks when Jake Plummer was there. And then And in 99 and 2000, he got his first chance to be an offensive coordinator with the San Diego Chargers. His brother, Paul Christ, who's now the head coach at the University of Wisconsin, they worked together with the San Diego Chargers before Paul returned to the college ranks. After that, he went back to the Arizona Cardinals for three seasons as quarterback's coach again. Then he spent five years in Carolina from 2006 to 2010, working as a tight ends coach and quality control coach under John Fox. And then came sort of the most recognizable portion of his career, which was a run with Jim Harbaugh and the San Francisco 49ers when they were on an epic run of three straight NFC title games and one Super Bowl appearance. That was when Colin Kaepernick was the quarterback there and Jeep was the quarterback's coach from 2011 to 14 before shifting into an offensive coordinator role in 2015. So there's all kinds of great stories coming out of those years because not only is Jim Harbaugh an amazing character, but when you have teams that make deep runs and you have polarizing players like Alex Smith and Colin Kaepernick and all the draft debates and things that go on. There's numerous stories and anecdotes and chapters and volumes that can be told about those years, and and Jeep tells some great ones later on. His most recent stint in the NFL was 2017 and 18. He was the tight ends coach for the Denver Broncos, and now he does some private work where he does projects for teams or organizations looking at things. He was involved in the build-up to this year's draft, doing some evaluations of players. He still focuses a lot on quarterbacks because he has a really keen eye for that position, having coached quarterbacks for a number of franchises over the years, and I think you guys are really, really going to enjoy this episode. Before we get into it, I have an update from our sponsor the last few weeks, drinkvirtually.com. That's drinkvirtually.com. As I told you guys, this is a website where if you're stuck in quarantine and you want something to do with your friends or your family members, or maybe even your coworkers, if you get along well enough, it's a totally free, no commitment website that has all kinds of fun drinking games that you can play there. There's things like Screw the Dealer, Higher or Lower, Ride the Bus, Wombat, which is the fastest growing game on the site. It's like a combination of Piccolo and uh, Apples to Apples and Cards Against Humanity. It's really fascinating and a lot of fun. They wanted to say thank you for all the support from this show, so they gave me some statistics to share with you guys in case you haven't visited yet and want to join. The site has been up for about a month. It started near the beginning of quarantine and lockdown and all those types of things, and in just under a month, they've had 180,000 page views from 108 different countries, 
45,000 games have been played with over 176,000 players in just under a month. So if you're interested in having a Zoom call or a Skype or a Google Hangouts with a bunch of your buddies and you want to do something fun, play some games, laugh a little bit and relax, I encourage you to go to drinkvirtually.com. That's drinkvirtually.com. As always, please drink responsibly. And hey, if you have a couple extra bucks lying around, don't forget to tip your dealer. And with that, let's get to today's episode featuring special guest, Jeep Christ. Well, Jeep, thank you so much for joining me. I think this is a day, uh, you and I are recording this on Thursday morning, that sports fans are finally going to feel a little bit of relief. This podcast won't come out until after the draft, but tonight there can be at least some sense of normalcy in the sports world with the first round of the NFL draft getting underway. And as somebody who has been part of a number of organizations and been in and around so many draft rooms, i got to ask, what are the emotions like on draft day? Well, the first thing you do, Michael is uh, get up and check your phone to see if there's been any trades. <laughs> so, <laughs> as coaches, uh, we're pretty good. We're like uh, uh, paper boys growing up. We love getting up early. We love grabbing a cup of coffee and going into work. Uh, but the way that the draft is these days, with the format being changed to a Thursday night, prime time, a lot of attention on it, uh, you're killing your time on draft day. Uh, all your work's been done. You know, the organization's probably spent the last, really the last week, finalizing all these scenarios and then really you're, you're just excited about the players that you may get you can forecast if you're the 20th pick you count 19 names that might go off the board ahead of you and then when a name that is a surprise to a lot of people including the coaches or the scouts or the general managers picking then you then that adds another name to the mix uh and then you know since since the 90s we've always had this prospect that people could trade up or trade down so now every pick may be available and so really that's what you're doing right now is looking at any possible draft day trades and uh, really excited about seeing what, uh, what talent you might add to your team. What, uh, what is the process like in terms of you know, the coaching staff being able to prepare for a draft? We hear so much about the scouting department, the GMs, and how that side of it prepares. But what does a coaching staff do to get ready for a draft? You know, Michael, it really varies from team to team. Uh, notoriously, the Bengals would take their uh, position coaches and their football coaches and become scouts once January rolls around. People that worked with that organization thought it was unique, but actually liked it because if you're the tight end coach or the running back coach or the linebacker coach, you'd go out and look at all these prospects, meet them face to face, maybe have a, a, a dinner with them before their pro day. Uh, so you really were very familiar with it. But the way most organizations are run, maybe the other 31, you, you're going to have an entire scouting department. They come in normally the last week of December for their last home game. And then they put their preliminary board together. Then they'll assign certain names, uh, certain players for the position coaches, the coordinators, the head coach um, to go over. So it's, it's more hand in glove, most other places. And you're going to have your, you're going to have your disagreements. You're going to have your, uh, this grade from the position coaches, this, this grade from the coordinators, this, and then you can, in theory, try to hammer all that out before the draft. And that's normally where the good conversation is, is when you, you have two people, you, you try to do that blind, so then you have influencing the jury. But then when you have two radically different grades on a player, it's kind of fun to hammer that out. When, when you're a position coach as opposed to a head coach or a coordinator, I'm sure it probably varies based on team to team, like you said, so maybe this is a difficult one to answer, but do you still feel like your voice is heard even if you're not necessarily a coordinator or a head coach? 
Yeah, you know, uh, the coordinators are always fairly busy because they're going to do all positions, not just the offensive line or the Got wide it. receivers. And uh, and so their reports aren't going to be as deep. And normally, uh, as an offensive staff, you'd get together and say, if you're the coordinator, you're saying, hey, guys, let's be on the same page here. I haven't had a chance to drill as deep as you did. Uh, so really, it's all hands on deck. And, and usually, that's not a hard process. The process where it hammers it out as you go into the room, uh, the term you'd use is, hey, I want to read my quarterback. So I remember being in San Francisco when Russell Wilson came out of Wisconsin. And uh, he's playing for my brother, who was the offense coordinator at the time for Wisconsin. So I had a really high grade on Russell. I loved Russell. And, uh, you know, the scout that maybe had done him at NC State, where he was a baseball player, if you remember, uh, he ended up uh, not being invited back by Tom O'Brien because they thought that Mike Glennon might transfer away. And so... Uh, Russell really looked at two teams, Auburn, which had just lost Cam Newton, and Wisconsin, of all places. And fortunately for all the Badger fans, Russell went to Wisconsin, uh, ended up getting drafted in the third round, and uh, really is on a Hall of Fame career. But it was a lot of fun to read that one because I felt like I had uh, insider information uh, through Paul and through just watching the Badgers have such a great year. Uh, but, But that might not have matched up with what the regional scout saw from his NC State days. Well, that's what I was going to ask you was for somebody that has had the opportunity to coach with your brother, Paul, in San Diego, and then also had the opportunity to then scout numbers and dozens of his players over the years, whether he was at <laughs> Pittsburgh, Wisconsin, etc. What is that like? Have you ever disagreed with your brother over a player? <laughs> you know, fortunately, uh, we're on the same page, and uh, we probably uh, did that fighting over a bowl of cereal and the sports page of the Wisconsin State <laughs> Journal or the Milwaukee Journal growing up. So uh, it's usually a lot of fun. You know, a lot of your discussions sometimes, uh, you know, come in the off season, or you, you talk about, geez, I like this guy coming up. He's done a lot. I remember when Jonathan Taylor uh, did his first scrimmage for the Badgers. Here he is, a true freshman out of New Jersey, and uh, – he, he took a screen pass like 85 yards and a couple of the defensive, it was this, I think the second team offense against the second team defense, a couple of the first team linebackers came over toward Paul and Paul's got such a great relationship with so many of his players. I think it was Chris Orr came up and they handed him the ball off on his uh, second play from scrimmage and he won about 45 and Chris Orr looked and deadpanned to Paul. When are you going to name him the starter? <laughs> <laughs> sure enough, uh, you know, whatever it is, 6,000 yards and, and, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of championship football behind them. Jonathan Taylor's in this draft, but uh, stories like that where you you hear about you know in an August night how Jonathan Taylor didn't impress any Heisman voter or any media member, but he impressed his own teammates, and uh, they knew what they had uh, from the very first scrimmage. When you got to the NFL, you spent you know the majority of your time. You were a coordinator for part of it. You coached quarterbacks a lot. You coached tight ends a lot. There's other positions on offense, obviously, as well. Did you find certain things easier or more difficult to scout based on your experience? That's an excellent question. You know, I think that everyone's going to focus on the quarterbacks, and I did too. Even when I was, uh, I enjoyed listening to your podcast with Dave McGinnis. I was with Dave. Dave. <laughs> Rightfully said that he was the ninth coach there for Mike Dicka, and I was—I know I was the tenth coach. Okay, where I really did uh, uh, quality control uh, for both offense and defense, which is unheard of these days. But I'd show up in the morning and break down the defensive tape, and then take breakfast, and then go break down the offensive tape. Uh, but ever since, uh, really, ever since the draft has become, um, you know, fun for draft nicks and uh, 
team followers and, and just the general public, there's always been a lot of attention on quarterbacks. And I always thought that that was a fun one to evaluate. But even back in those days in the early 90s, uh, quarterbacks is where you really want to focus. If you get that right, it seems like the rest of your team uh, can follow suit, especially if you have a good young quarterback. And uh, and so over the years, I've really enjoyed that. And including for this draft, you do some projects for some people, for some different teams about the predictability. Is there a college stat or is there, you know, a divining rod that can tell me what guy's really going to play out? But since we're recording this before the draft and listening to this after the draft, I'm not going to make any easy predictions. <laughs> well, the, yeah, I was going to say uh, the only one that I think nobody would harm you for is if you said Burrow's going to go number one. I think that one's pretty safe <laughs> right. at this point. Um, I was yeah, cu- I was exactly. curious in your experience. Did you get the sense that coaches and scouts watch tape differently? No doubt, without a doubt about it. Uh, when I was back in Chicago uh, with Dick in the early nineties, uh, Mike McCartney was Bill McCartney's son. Was a scout for us. He's now become an agent. a very successful uh, sports agent. But uh, it was really fun because Mike, being a coach's son, and myself being a coach's son really had a lot in common. And so we would go to work, but then we would kind of branch off to our uh, offices just down the hall from each other. And then we'd come out and we would see things differently. I think scouts do a great job of identifying traits. You know, that this guy's uh, long speed or this guy's ball skills or this guy's flexibility or how he pulls for a trap play or a power play. Uh, they're really good at isolating traits. Coaches are always going to look at it from the perspective of what, what plays, what scheme, and ultimately, you know, with quarterbacks, for example, you know, can he finish drives? Can he get into the red zone and score touchdowns instead of settling for field goals? Can he not turn the ball over? Which really aren't traits, but more about how you play the game. And so, uh, again, that's when you go in after the season and read your scouting reports, and there's a difference between the two. You know, scouts do a great job of identifying these measurables that we talk about. And you can debate about how important a measurable like hand size is for quarterbacks. But at the end of the day, coaches are going to be more um, influenced by the game tape they watch. And scouts are going to be more influenced by maybe, hey, the strength and conditioning coach told me this when I was there. Or the trainer told me this and said he's a durable, he's a durable kid. So uh, hopefully the jigsaw pieces come together into a nice clear picture for the general manager, for the person that's making the draft. Yeah, I remember on the the first episode of the podcast, I had Jerry Glanville on, and he was saying that throughout his career, he found himself putting a much higher value on willingness to tackle or absorb contact than the scouts did. And he <laughs> yeah. said, "I'd rather have a guy who ran four seven but would go you know a thousand miles an hour into a into a collision than a guy who ran four five and ducks out of bounds." You know, so he was he was talking about how he really that was one area for him that was uh, that was unique. right. And, and that's a good one, Michael, because how do you measure that, right? You're trying to find measurables, and then there's intangibles. And and successful players have both. They have measurable skills, but then they also have this quality, this this it factor uh, that, that you fall in love with. And then normally when you describe, like Dave McGinnis was describing, Aeneas Williams, yeah. you, know, you can almost see the love that these coaches have. I know when Paul was at, my brother Paul was at Pittsburgh. He had Aaron Donald. He, he loved Aaron Donald. And this was long before he was selected by the Rams. They went to the uh, Home Depot College Award Show, which was down in Orlando, Florida. And they took a quick private plane. And then they got on the plane. They got back about 3 in the morning into Pittsburgh. And they had um, bull prep with bull practice at 8. And so Paul looked at 
Aaron and said, Aaron, you know, congratulations on winning the Outland Trophy. It's well-deserved. Uh, you know, sleep in. You know, you've, you've earned the right to sleep in and uh, take some take the morning off. And we're just going to, you know, practice the young guys and get ready for the bowl game. Of course, Aaron Donald had none of it. And by 7 a.m. when Paul was getting into work after his short turnaround, there's Aaron Donald joking around with the guys in the locker room and receiving their congratulations. But the way these intangibles are wired, Paul, without a doubt, knew that Aaron Donald was a special, special kid. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that story from Dave about how the the defensive line coach in L.A. brought Aaron Donald into the draft room with the Rams and said, hey, just want to introduce you to this guy. He's better than everybody on that board. And, uh, you know, if if you're going to make a proclamation like that, you better be right, you know. (laughs) And they were. And unfortunately, uh, just like Russell, uh, Russell goes to Seattle, so we face him twice a year. And Aaron goes to uh, the Rams and when I was in San Francisco, we faced them twice a year and I keep shaking my head like, this is great. We've got to face these guys not once, but twice a year, every year. What, uh, what was it like to have Mike Ditka as your first boss in the NFL? What a great way. And, and, and it was a bygone era. You know, uh, I remember uh, being at Platteville, Wisconsin. That was the connection. My dad was the uh, head football coach at the University of Wisconsin, Platteville. And Mike Ditka had remembered when he was a player that got out of Dallas. Dallas was America's team under Coach Landry, and there was so much attention and focus on them as, you know, just uh, in the community. They couldn't go out without being mobbed. So they always went to uh, California, Thousand Oaks, California, Cal Lutheran, and they always had training camp there, which they still do to this day. Uh, so Mike Dicker was looking for a place to train. They chose Platteville, Wisconsin, out in the middle of nowhere. And really got to know the organization well. And then going to work for Mike in 1991, you realized how, how wired he was. He was so confident of what he was seeing in a football game. So, uh, you know, he, 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 he loved, uh, he loved toughness, but he, he, he did it in such a unique way. Now you talk to Gary Fensick or some of the old time bears, his nickname was Sybil because one moment, Mike was this way, and the next moment he was that. But as a young coach, <laughs> he, had, he did a great job of an enduring loyalty. I remember uh, I was driving a 1983 Buick Riviera into the parking lot, and he said, uh, hey, Jeep, swing by my house tonight. I got something for you. Well, he had this six-car garage, and all six bays had uh, different different cars in there. And he said, uh, take the Take the Toyota Camry. It's a, I'm not using it at all. you gotta, you got to upgrade <laughs> Holy the cow. NFL. So I was so nervous backing out of that driveway. Uh, I didn't want to hit any of the other six cars or, uh, or the car that he was driving. So Mike had this great ability to engender loyalty. Uh, he was tough, you know, and, and, and that toughness, he expected the team to play with. I remember uh, Bear fans and probably Packer fans, and I know Viking fans remember when Harbaugh threw an audible to an interception and then Mike berated them on the sidelines up at the old Metrodome. And I remember my job at the time, being the 10th coach was to get the play-by-play. As you know, in the press box, you kind of get that two-minute warning play-by-play and the stats. And so I was uh, shuffling those papers. We had really blown a 20-7 to lead in the fourth quarter, lost 21-20. to I was going to take a quick shower before you get on the bus, and in comes Mike. And Mike was so despondent. He knew he shouldn't have ripped uh, Jim that way. Uh, but he, he knew that when he made the audible that bad things were going to happen. And, he, and so you saw the full spectrum of emotions from even a guy like Mike Dicka, who was tough as nails, but a lot of fun to be around. He, every Thursday, instead of uh, 
going home after doing the red zone uh, homework for the day, we'd go up into his office and he kind of had a staff room and he'd open up some Chianti wine and some cheeses and crackers and he had his buddy <laughs> Marvin from the Nightingale uh, cater some food in and he would tell the funniest stories. He, he went to Pitt thinking he was going to be a dentist. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so those of you from Aliquippa who thought that, you know, Mike Dickett would have the nice natural touch as being a dentist, you're out of it. But he was the perfect football coach, especially for a town like Chicago. And as a young coach, learning how to watch tape and seeing what was important and, and not work too hard. Trust what you got when, when you got your game plan done. And uh, just had a lot of had a lot of fun with Mike. Well, that was that was something I wanted to pick your brain about. Is I think you know now when you talk to coaches, and I'm sure it was similar then. The the quality control guys are some of the ultimate grinders of a football staff because you're cutting your teeth. You're new to the staff. Sometimes you're new to the league in general. So I'm curious. Back then, how was quality controlled viewed? And then as you you know rose up the ranks and became a position coach and a coordinator and things, how did you rely on quality control guys? That's an excellent question because I think I set the all-time NFL record. I think I was quality control for 15 years, even when I was coaching in <laughs> Carolina. John Fox is like, hey, I want to give you the tight ends, but you do such a good job at quality control, I don't want you to lose you to do that. And I said, Fox, you give me the tight ends, I'll still do what I – you just do what you do. But the quality control job basically is to break down all that tape that comes in and then um, put it in a digestible way, whether it's cut-ups or reports, uh, so that – when you turn the week over, you play on Sunday traditionally, and now Monday is the start of the new week. You've got everything queued up for the position coaches, for the coordinators. But really, uh, you know, a lot of great guys when I broke in. John Gruden was the quality control guy for the Packers when Holmgren sure. was hired. So it's a great path, and really you get to learn what all 22 are doing uh, by breaking down the tape and going through it play-by-play, uh, line-by-line, item-by-item. Uh, you know, Coach Dicker was with the – Cowboys first uh Tom Landry hired him as a position coach and he had to do some of the quality control work and he hated it it really became uh you know through the 90s when it used to be uh the games were were filmed on 16 millimeter uh tape back in the Lombardi and Hallis days they would exchange the tape and the tape would go from Detroit on to Minnesota on to Chicago well they would splice out the plays and then they would do a hack job and try to put those plays back together. So you'd give this tape that had um, clips upside down and clips backward. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, you didn't have a whole lot to go on. But then in uh, 1986, they went to beta tape. And then uh, in the early 90s, they put everything and digitized everything, even though it was, uh, you know, low, low quality. It was low def all the way, but at least it was on videotape. And so now you could use originally an Avid board or some type of uh, video editing uh, way to to make these teach tapes and so re- really fast forward to today we don't use chalk to teach in football terms we often use an eight play cut up a 12 play cut up you know we'll we'll splice maybe the tv perspective in with the all 22 perspective but uh you know it, it's advanced in such a long way in such a different way but it's still technology based and uh and there's some great young kids out there that are cutting their teeth and, and making their way. and They'll become fine coaches because they've gone through the quality control. What was maybe one of the most difficult things to, to adjust to or maybe something that you didn't expect when you moved from that quality control position with the Bears to suddenly being you know a position coach for the first time when you went with um, Vince and, and Dave to Arizona, you had the tight ends there. What was that like to have you know your own unit all of a sudden? 
you know, there's always a restless nature with coaches in terms of wanting to advance their career. I think it's true in a lot of professions, but coaches are no different. And so after being with uh, the Bears for five years and being comfortable there, and uh, I had a lot of fun with Danny Abramowitz when he was hired as the special team coach by Mike Dickick because he let me really coach on the field. And uh, special teams, you just about deal with everyone on the team. And so you really can uh, sharpen your coaching skills, your communication skills, which is your teaching skills. That's really what coaching is about. And so uh, when Vince took off and got the uh, Cardinals job and I was a candidate to do that, I really wanted to go down there. Uh, You always want to flatten the curve of, moving around every year or two to try to chase, you know, going from this position to that position, being a quarterback coach might be better than being a tight end coach. Being an offensive coordinator might be better than being right. a position coach, being a head coach is being a coordinator. But if you're not careful, you're, you're always just chasing your tail and it's really hard on your family and it's really hard on your, uh, on your relationships. And so uh, you, you want to do a great job. So I always joke that my long range goal is the same as my short range goal, which was to win this Sunday. <laughs> and if you win, uh, you know, over the years, you're fortunate enough that you have opportunities come by your way. But I know, you know, Dave McGinnis for being such a great guy is awful humble. You know, he, he, he had turned down some coordinator jobs. And then when Vince took the Cardinal job, he was one of the, me and Dave both left the bears and, you know, and then Dave got a chance to come back to Chicago. And what he was saying was that he was actually interviewing for the Bears head job with Virginia and Ed McCaskey. But then he was waiting to hear overnight if he got the job or not. And then he was driving back into the Bears facility because they wanted to talk about staffing and they wanted to talk about the calendar for the year. Uh, I think it was uh, WBBM uh, radio, the flagship of uh, Bears and Cubs uh, football, Bears football and Cubs baseball announced that Dave McGinnis was going to be named the coach. And he started to freak out like no one's told me that. <laughs> and so it was, an, it was kind of an awkward situation. So his phrase is that uh, he was the head coach for the Bears for six hours. He didn't know it for three. And that's really pretty true. Uh, but you always want to, you, you, your most fun times are when you have a little continuity, both with your team and the staff. And you can put together, um, you know, maybe you come into an organization like we did with the Cardinals and, and you try to get to 500. And then two years later under Jake Plummer, uh, you know, by hook or by crook, we made the playoffs for the first time in 41 years and, and won a playoff game against Dallas. So uh, those are memorable moments when you look back on it, because you're just trying to you're just trying to win on Sunday. You know, we never we never blew anyone out, but you figured out a way to win at the end. And there was a lot of joy uh, with those wins. One of the things that I always like to ask coaches about is how they came to coach certain positions that they didn't play or what that adjustment was like to be at a position that you didn't necessarily have firsthand experience at. And not just in terms of learning the techniques and how to teach them, but also how do you get guys to buy in if they know that you've never played their position or whatever the case may be. Maybe you never played it at the highest level, but you played it in college, high school, etc. So for a guy that coached tight ends and quarterbacks, and then obviously you were a coordinator at times as well. How would you compare and contrast what it was like to coach those two positions and sort of the different techniques or methods that went into quarterbacks versus tight ends? Sure. So first off, you you know, as kids, we all loved playing backyard football. I think it's one of the greatest things that you can do. And and really when uh, my own kids are growing up, there's nothing better than just playing catch with the football and trying to get it to spiral and shows over. And so, 
you know, that starts there. And then you get into more organized, whether it's youth football or high school football, you know, usually they're going to take the best athlete and have them play quarterback. So that was what I was. And then I, I joked, uh, you go to college and, and I went to Princeton University and they needed help on defense. So they moved me there and they still needed help. <laughs> uh, but really, uh, but really, I think when you're trying to deal with uh, any, any position, you have to be observant as a coach and see what they need to do to get their game better. So it's really not about, um, you know, sometimes they say that the, that, that, the, that the average player becomes the great coach because you had to maximize what your, what your skill set was. And I, I do think that you can observe people. Take, for example, Jake Plummer. You know, Jake was one of the most instinctive quarterbacks. We were fortunate to get him in the second round. Uh, but his personality was such that he was great uh, interacting with his teammates, but sometimes with authority he would, he would, he, he would uh, kind of clash with authority. And so you just had to communicate with them and say, hey, there's a lot of things I'm observing here. Maybe the quality control background, maybe just being a coach's son where you see so much football, you see something that's a little out of the ordinary. Like you can't do that. That's not going to be successful. But if you try it this way, uh, you might have more success. And so it's a collaborative. Coaching is collaborative. Maybe that's where it's a little bit different than uh, lecturing or teaching and that you're just it's a one way street where you're just uh orating where coaching I think has to be collaborative where you observe people you know I remember uh you know observing Jim Harbaugh when he was playing and I was with the Bears he was a player at the time and he he just had a passion to want to win but he was always kind of fidgety and tinkering and sometimes you'd say something just to try to calm him down do you think I should wear sleeves it's a little cold out there and I said no Jim you're going to be fine once you get lathered up for the game you don't need sleeves and sometimes players just need to have uh, someone that they trust in a communication standpoint, not just a technique standpoint, they can kind of uh, right the ship. And so uh, we're fortunate that it's not like golf, maybe where we, you got a guy like uh, Tiger's old coach Harmon, who was such a good player as a golfer that he naturally fit into it. I think you can still contribute. And then uh, over the years, you, you have an accumulated knowledge plus what you bring to the table that, uh, you know, it's fun to coach these guys. And I think that the one thing you want them to do now, there's so much scrutiny is remember to just relax and play the game. It's still a fun game to play, but it, it, it you work on your techniques in the off season, but you got to compete and, and, and fight and be tough and work through certain things. And those are still cliches, but they're, they're true playing today. And, and then the joy that you see these guys play with, that's where the energy comes from. You need an awful lot of energy to go through, uh, an NFL football game for 60 minutes and you want energy at the end. And so those are all things that you can do that are independent of, well, because I played it, just do it like me. And then sometimes you see guys like that who try to hop into the line. Now Jim was notorious for that in San Francisco uh, when it was a rookie camp or down the line practice. He loved to hop in and play quarterback. So that was always <laughs> part of Jim's deal. Uh, he uh, One time he came out with his uh, traditional a black polar fleece with the Niners logo on it and then his khakis. And, of course, he always wore cleats uh, to practice. That's another story I can give you. But he took off the black polar fleece and the khakis. Underneath it was a full uniform, and he went through the practice of a full uniform wearing number four in San Francisco gear. And that was just who Jim was. Jim, Jim ran out of words. He would just want to show you how to do it. Just do it like this. And that's authentically who he was, and it made him unique. 
Yeah, I think the, um, the the relationships between coaches and players, I think, are, are fascinating. And I remember when I was in Green Bay, the defensive backs coach, the cornerback specifically, was a guy named Joe Witt. And he was a guy yep. who had spent some time in college. He had been a recruiting coordinator at Louisville. And so he had that experience with especially young kids. And I think he did a really nice job of connecting with rookies, first-year players, young guys. And one of the things he told me that he did was that in order to kind of show the guys that he cared about them as people in addition to players, he would kind of do his research on a guy. And then he would put together like like a poster that had different things that he knew represented interests or things about the kid's life. And he would give it to him and have him kind of put it in his locker. And, you know, it sounded almost a little bit juvenile, but I think the point was that for these young guys who are coming from a college environment where they're very much kids and now they're expected to be adults, you want to show them that it's, it's, yes, it's about football and winning games, but you also have to get along with the people that you spend so much time with. And if you're showing somebody that you're taking the time to learn about their background or learn that they like a particular type of music, music or a particular movie and you demonstrate that to them then it just heightens the bond a little bit at an age where they're looking for people to gravitate toward coming from college into the NFL you know what I mean it's an excellent example I, I know uh, we've talked about how it used to be that you you kind of taught the plays that we've seen the Lombardi sleep on on a chalkboard with the chalk but really you know if you only have 20 minutes of a meeting time and you want to build your culture. What you just described was how one particular position coach could build culture within a team to, 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 to make it a cohesive and adhesive group through good times and bad. I remember one time, you know, you'd only have 20 minutes. So you have your eight play cut up on first and 10 and your uh, eight play cut up on blitz. But I noticed, uh, for example, we all have Instagram accounts and I noticed my own kids want to zip through the pictures. We're, we're a, video and, and picture-driven world these days. So uh, before one of those 20-minute uh, short video clip meetings, I found everyone that was playing tight end for me in Denver, a high school basketball shot of them. And they, <laughs> they had more fun with that. But you're transitioning from your outside world and all the clamor of, I got to get this done, I got to get to work, I got to get that. And so uh, we would always have, uh, especially at the start of the week, maybe on a Wednesday if they've had Tuesday off, just a way that they, you get them to laugh and get engaged with that. And again, they go through these pictures so fast, you don't have to hold them up there for 15 seconds. But if you have six guys in the room and they, you found six high school basketball photos, they would all laugh and look at the board and then sure. give each other a hard time. And then say, okay, now that I've got your attention. But those usually become the meetings that they remember more than, hey, uh, who do you got to block in 74 protection? <laughs> so so how did you feel stepping in front of the big room for the first time in 99 when you become a coordinator and instead of having maybe five six guys in your under your you know responsibility umbrella suddenly you've got the whole offense and you got to speak to essentially half the team or a little more depending on what the percentages are what was that like for you you know it was exciting and you, you wait for a long time and you've always had a vision of what you wanted to do not just schematically but just how you wanted to communicate and then you come into a real situation. And the real situation in San Diego there was we were not there. Mike Riley was the head coach. Paul was on the staff. Uh, but we inherited Ryan Leaf, and that was, such a, that was such a big deal. And everyone had an opinion on Ryan. Ryan was a talented kid that just had inconsistencies in his life. You know, one day he'd show up and do a great job of working. If Ryan was always a bad person, it'd be easy to hate him. But he would show up and do some great things. And then the next day, he wouldn't show up for a meeting, or he, he just was inconsistent with his with his work habits. And there was a lot of scrutiny. He felt like he was swimming in a fishbowl, and uh, 
you know, maybe like a lot of young kids was, you know, got paid a lot of money and was just trying to figure out a way to have an easier way than just do the job. The easiest, there is no magic dust to sprinkle on you, right? Just, just do the job. Uh, so standing in front of the room, you're excited about it, but then reality quickly hits and that you have uh, a team that you're responsible for and a unit that you're responsible for. And, uh, and in that particular case, uh, you know, you're trying to get Ryan, the, the owner wants to see Ryan Lee play quarterback. We traded for Jim Harbaugh as a backup, knowing Jim was going to get into coaching. We thought he would be a good influence right. on Ryan, but that was like oil and water. Uh, so, you know, Jim was competitive and wanted to be the starter. And so the first year in 1999, uh, Jim was the starter. We also brought in Eric Kramer, who uh, Bobby Beathard, the longtime uh, NFL GM, really wanted to bring Eric in. And then Eric had a neck issue where he, he really couldn't participate. So Jim became our starter. And uh, <laughs> Jim was so tough. We're, we're playing in the final game of the year. It was the Y2K game, as we joke around, because – uh, we had to travel early because everyone was worried that somehow the uh, plane's clocks were going to reset and you couldn't fly. That's uh, amazing. <laughs> so Jim dislocated his hip in the final game of the year. We are a 500 team. And I, I said, all right, Moses Moreno, you're our backup. You're ready, Moses. You're going in. And Jim's like, I, I got to go back in. I said, Jim, you're not going back in. You just dislocated your hip. He said, I got incentives. <laughs> oh, my so gosh. Much. That's amazing. So he's, he's, he's trying to wince and trying to uh, – I said, Jim, this is not like a sprained ankle. Uh, but, yeah, it was, it was fun in San Diego and really fun coaching with Paul. And we did a lot of good things, but ultimately um, a successful organization, it's not just the coaching, it's not just the scouting, but that magic time where you, where you bring a first-round draft pick in who plays quarterback and, and he hits. And then you've got – we had a great defense with Junior Seau and Rodney Harrison – uh, but so many of the resources were on defense that, that we weren't balanced as a team. We couldn't play complementary football. We tried to run the ball with – we brought back Natron Means, and I remember one game down in Miami. We were 7-7 seven and seven with two games left in the season. We were still in, like a lot of teams, in the playoff run, and we ran Natron Means 24 times for 23 yards. <laughs> so, yeah, that's tough. That's so tough. He's, he's, he's frustrated because, you know, he, he's past his prime, and he knows it, and he's slamming his helmet down. And the defense just wants us to, you know, control the ball, get some first downs, uh, play complimentary football, but we really weren't wired to do that. And, and so, um, you know, there were other games where even though we weren't very talented, Jim Harbaugh threw for the only time in his career, threw for over 400 yards against the Vikings. But I'm sorry, uh, but, you know, we just couldn't put together all the pieces at the same time. And that's that's the problem for a lot of teams. You know, everyone wants to show up in August and have that magical run to the Super Bowl, you know, Packer fans can appreciate that. You have a guy like Aaron Rodgers, you know, he's, he's won a Super Bowl, but Aaron's worked hard since that Super Bowl win down in Dallas. And I remember in San Francisco thinking we knocked him out of the playoffs twice. Yep. It's frustrating for him, you know, and it's frustrating for him when he goes to San Francisco this year and you're thinking, Hey, you know, we're knocking on the door. I've been there before. I know how to do it follow my lead. I'm a talented guy and it's, it, and it's a team sport. And that's, that's the brutal reality of football is that you, you, you need a lot of these different pieces to go together. It's not like basketball, but it's football and you could have a great quarterback like Aaron is. And that doesn't guarantee anything, especially winning a Super Bowl. 
Well, let me ask you this. You mentioned earlier about how sometimes if guys jump around too much or too often because you're chasing one thing or another, it can be difficult for the family. And also, in some cases, it can be detrimental to the career. So how difficult and what were the thoughts like in your head, knowing that you had an opportunity to be a coordinator for the first time if you went to the Chargers in 99, but you had a quarterback there that had a pretty rough rookie season and nobody knew if he was going to pan out or if he didn't. And obviously, if you're a coordinator, the quarterback has to be, you know, somebody that you can rely on. It's a quarterback driven league and, and they had invested so much in him, like you said. So was that a big consideration thinking about the pieces that you had there and whether or not you wanted to go? You know, what's really fun when you're a coordinator is you get to call the plays. And I remember uh, one of the unique things about uh first going to San Diego and I think Paul being there was great. It made it easier to leave Jake. And, and then, you know, when I was there uh, and when Dave McGinnis got the head job in Arizona, he was the first one to call me to, to want to bring me back sure. and the organization wanted to bring me back and Jake wanted to bring me back. So there's, there's always that uh, reunion aspect to it, but I would say, and it was a lot of fun in San Francisco. I don't know if most people knew this or not, but when Jim Harbaugh was the head coach with the Niners, he assigned a different offensive coach, uh, a different part of the game plan to put together. He called it a lead coach, but then to call it on game day. And really? he felt like that was, he felt like that was something that was, uh, you couldn't get a, a fingerprint. You were unpredictable because, Oh, because there uh, wouldn't be example, as many Greg, tendencies. Yes. Yes. So a guy like Greg Roman, who's now done a great job with Lamar Jackson in Baltimore and, you know, really did a great job while we were, he would be kind of in charge of uh, the first and 10 run game. And then he'd, he'd be a contributor on play action pass. And then Johnny Morton was our receiver coach. He'd have third down and I would have red zone in two minutes. And so that was a lot of fun. I remember uh, that playoff game where we played the saints, where Alex Smith scores with maybe two minutes left. And then breeze comes back and hits a long pass uh, to, to Graham for a touchdown and now we're, we're back in two minute mode. So we went from being ahead to being behind. And then of course we hit Vernon on a post route uh, with maybe 10 seconds left in the game to win it at home. That was our first year together in San Francisco, our first playoff win together. And I remember standing next to Tom Rathman who had played through all those great Montana years. Uh, he knew Huey Lewis in the news because they always sang the national anthem before a playoff game. <laughs> he was so ecstatic. And he said, I've never heard candlesticks so loud. But that was fun to know that in the previous five years I'd been in Carolina. So we had played the Saints twice. And uh, Greg Williams, the great defensive coordinator, very aggressive. Uh, every now and then, when you got him on the ropes, would drop back and play a soft uh, two Tampa coverage. So I remember, you know, thinking, oh, God, they've just scored. We've got to figure out a way to go down the field. The emotions of a playoff game, being at home. And uh, Alex Smith put together a beautiful drive, really the, the the throw to Vernon to get us down into scoring territory was one of his best throws. And Vernon had this great speed that made it a 50 yard gain. And then uh, we were only down three and we still had a timeout. So we knew that we could kick the field goal and go to overtime, but you're looking across the way at Drew Brees, right. Sean Payton and that, that crew. And, uh, and so we, we switched to personnel group. Uh, the guys on the phone said my voice dropped about four baritones and run this. <laughs> and that was so much joy where you had a play that you designed and then you just kind of said, okay, if they play cover two, this thing's going to, this thing's going to pop and it's going to work. They played cover two it popped, it worked. And then you saw everyone else around you so happy that it made, 
I, I was more relieved that they played cover two, but uh, those are great memories. And, uh, and I think that's one of the great things about being a coordinator is that you, you, you want to have the right play at the right time. Right. And, and then, you know, working with Paul, I think Paul is so unique in Wisconsin because I think he's probably taken it to the next level. And he said, I think I want the right player, not the right play, but the right player at the right time. And he's done such a great job recruiting and getting his team just the way that, uh, the Badgers play that, you know, that's the ultimate is if you've got the right player, not just the right play, you can have consistent success and you're not always just trying to, uh, get the right card dealt to you. And so again, boomeranging back to that's why the draft is so exciting. It's, yep. it's can we find the right player? And we don't know. We don't know. We think we know as someone that's making the picks, that the first player taken will be the best player from this year's draft, like we're thinking with Joe Burrow. But then the second player is never the second best, and the third player taken is never the third best. And so there's this great excitement, but it's still about human performance and guys getting in the right situation. I remember when Ben Roethlisberger was taken in 2004, he was mad he wasn't picked earlier, but what a great spot that Ben Roethlisberger ended up with in Pittsburgh, and we'll always see Ben Roethlisberger as a Pittsburgh Steeler. Well, there's a couple of guys I want to ask you about, speaking of you know that sort of concept of picking the right guys at the right time. And you know I asked Dave McGinnis about a couple of the defensive guys when you were in Arizona, but I have to ask you about Anquan Bolden's rookie season. You guys took him at oh. number 54 overall. Uh, from Florida State, and he finishes with 101 catches for 1,377 <laughs> yards and eight touchdowns and is the only rookie to make the Pro Bowl that year. How in the world did that happen? Okay, Michael, this is, this is one of the great job of uh, throwing a dart at the at the dartboard and hitting a uh, bullseye. Well, thank you. Because uh, <laughs> we went, uh, we're going into that draft, and we had three receivers, Frank Sanders, Rob Moore, who's still coaching for the Tennessee Titans right yep. now, and, and a guy by the name of Marte Jenkins. All three of those were receivers whose contract expired. So we knew we wanted to go into that draft and get a receiver. The second thing that we also knew, and you heard Dave McGinnis talking about Simeon Rice, we wanted to replace Simeon Rice as an edge rusher. And Dave, as a defensive head coach, is going to be grinding the tape, just like Vince Tobin was when we found Simeon Rice. Is there that edge rusher that can do it all? And right in our backyard playing at Arizona state is Terrell Suggs. And so <laughs> everyone's thinking, okay, we're going to, we're going to just take Terrell Suggs and then we'll, you know, use a second round draft pick on a receiver. Well, sometimes you're so close to the fire that you don't see um, the amount of heat that it's generating. So we were uh, in the off season looking at Terrell and he got into a three on three basketball tournament, I guess in Chandler, Arizona and got into a fight. So now all of a sudden we're debating maybe Terrell isn't the guy. And then everyone at the time trained uh, down at Athlete Performance. You would go down to Phoenix and train. It was kind of when that was becoming in vogue for the draft picks. But Terrell Suggs ran a pedestrian, I want to say like four, eight, five. Yeah, it was really slow. 40 times. Wow, very good. So, uh, so now all of a sudden what looks like the easiest pick in America, we're starting to get sweaty palms about. So, uh, I think we had the seventh pick there. We knew that we that Suggs would be there if we picked him. And, of course, we traded out of that slot. Uh, we, tr- we traded with the uh, Saints, who had the 16th and 17th pick, in between the time that we would have picked at seven and the time we had two picks at 16 and 17. Terrell Suggs goes to Baltimore. Of course, he's 
had a uh, Hall of Fame career. Well, we liked Calvin Pace out of Wake Forest because his measurables were much better than Suggs. He ran a better 40 time, and it really had Calvin had a nice career first with the Cardinals and then with the Jets. And then in the second pick, we felt like we would get a better receiver. And the scouts really loved a guy by the name of Brian Johnson out of Penn State. 6'4", okay. he could run. He had all these measurables. Well, in the meantime, Jerry Sullivan was our receiver coach. He's hitting the roof. I didn't like Brian Johnson. Well, he's a kick returner. So we get into this big brouhaha. Dave McGinnis feels great about Calvin Pace, thinks that we've kind of hit it right. And Jerry goes, I want Taylor Jacobs from Florida. I'm going to make So he goes to the owner. So he's throwing a you know, uh, a draft fit. Right. Saying that's not the guy I wanted. We've lost three guys. So they huddle up the head coach, the general manager, uh, and which was at the time, uh, Rod Graves and the owner. And they say, okay, well don't panic. We still got a lot of, we still got our second round draft pick. We flip flopped with the saints. Well, Taylor Jacobs out of Florida, because we had flip flopped out of a higher second round pick and went to the lower second round pick. Uh, Taylor Jacobs is selected by the Redskins. Now we don't know who the hell we're going to pick. <laughs> Here comes Hank Kuhlman, our special teams. Well, if you guys don't know who to pick, I sure as hell like that Anquan Bolden. He, he he can't run out of town in a week, but he's got unbelievable hands, and he felt like he was one of the best uh, kick return and punt return fielders, the fielder of a punt, which sure. is still one of the most unique skills that, you know, like, hey, you want to have some courage? Go back there and have – 11 guys hard charging down at you. Well, you got to field this punt that's nosing over or drifting in the breeze. So we end up choosing Anquan Bolden as, as kind of a compromise. And we go out to our, our first practice after the draft when we have the draft choices and we also have our veterans coming back in that first uh, mini camp. And we're not around Anquan more than five minutes and we realize okay, we chose the wrong guy in the first round. <laughs> this was the first round talent. He catch the ball, nervous as all get out, and Anquan looked like a 10-year pro. So now we go into the first uh, preseason, or sorry, first regular season game, uh, Steve Mariucci, Mooch's first game in Detroit, and we're p- playing against the Lions and Joey Harrington. And um, and I, I remember telling Tim Ryan, who was doing the broadcast at the time as the color analyst, it wouldn't surprise me if Anquan has 10 catches for 200 yards. And he ended up having, I think, 14 catches for 220 yards. Yep. But we knew that uh, the, the moment we saw Anquan live, that he was so unique and uniquely wired. And he was such a great athlete, but he had hurt his knee. And so that's why his stock had fallen. And he probably, to this day, never ran more than, you know, probably a four nine forty. But in terms of being tough and in terms of being dedicated and just the right guy for your team. And so uh, – you know, I, I still say the most valuable player when the Harbaugh's faced each other in the Super Bowl wasn't Joe Flacco, but Anquan Bolden. He made yep. some unbelievable plays. And then uh, Jim's brother, John, called him up and said, because of the Flacco contract, we're going to get rid of Anquan. You know, if you want to give us a fifth or a sixth, you guys can have him and his contract. And Jim jumped at it, and we ended up having Anquan. I think he's a surefire Hall of Fame player. Um, you know, just a unique guy. But again, the measurables didn't always match how he played the game. And we were so fortunate. Uh, we were so fortunate that Washington took Taylor Jacobs because it allowed us the opportunity to take Anquan and uh, 
and the rest is history. So then after your time in Arizona, you go to Carolina, and there's a season there where at the receiver position, you guys have Steve Smith and Keyshawn Johnson, which are two of the biggest personalities you could possibly imagine at that position. So I don't know if there were any trash-talking incidents that you recall, but what was it like to just have two of the premier divas at that position? Well, first off, you know, Keyshawn's a polarizing figure, but I, I love Keyshawn. In fact, when the Badgers were at the Rose Bowl, uh, just this past January, Keyshawn was on the sidelines. He still lives in uh, L.A. And he, this guy yells at me, Jeez, Jeez! And I went over there and uh, we reconnected. But, you know, uh, Mike Riley, who we worked with in San Diego, was the one that had recruited Keyshawn. Now, Keyshawn grew up just a couple blocks from the USC campus, so always wanted to be a Trojan. And Keyshawn had this great um, game day confidence. You know, and we were fortunate to be around Randy Moss. Uh, at the end of his career in San Francisco. But Keyshawn, again, wiring-wise or intangible-wise, had this had this unbelievable confidence uh, that he could do it. And, and, and he wanted the ball. He wanted to be involved. And, and he did work at it. Now, the, the problem with some of the guys like that is when they don't get the ball right away or they right. don't see success in the first quarter. And, and, and that goes back. We had heard stories about uh, the old-timers like Tom Rathman talking about Jerry Rice or Joe Montana or one of my all-time favorite quarterbacks, Steve Bono, you know, they'd always say, oh, yeah, we had to give Jerry. If, if Jerry didn't have a ball in the first drive, that's part of why Walsh did such a good job of scripting because they wanted to get Jerry involved early. And it, it's just less of a distraction. But uh, Smitty, Smitty was ultra-competitive and went up, you know, to about Keyshawn's navel. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> they – they worked it out with themselves. You know, I think that uh, Smitty's another great guy because uh, he had gotten used to being around Musin Muhammad. Right. Musin is an a plus, a plus person, not just an A plus football player. And so I think Smitty knew the value of having a guy opposite him where they couldn't always tilt coverage. Uh, and as a result, uh, they got along well. But uh, you know, beautiful piece of work. Now, of course, Keyshawn goes and works uh, at ESPN, and he had a famous uh, segment he always wrote, come on, man. And I said to Keyshawn at the Rose Bowl, I said, Keyshawn, how come they haven't pulled up that reverse, the wide receiver reverse pass that you t- attempted to throw at home in Carolina? Because that, that was one of the worst passes I've ever seen in the NFL. <laughs> and it was an interception. And uh, he, said, he said, be quiet, Chief. Don't let anyone know that because – even though he was confident that he could make the play, he he that might have been the worst throw I've ever seen in the National Football League was Keyshawn Johnson trying to throw a pass off a reverse. That's pretty so that's good. The old, that's the original come on, man. i got to ask you, too, about a guy on defense on those Carolina teams. I had some opportunities at the end of his career to spend some time around Julius Peppers. And, uh, yep, Pepp- and Peppers was a guy who... You know, I said this on the podcast I just recorded actually um, a couple days ago with Casey Hayward, the cornerback for the Chargers. It hasn't come out yet, but uh, Casey was on those teams in Green Bay. And I said, look, I've been around, you know, the BJ Rajis and the 330-pound guys. And I said, but I still think that Julius Peppers is like one of the most massive humans that I've ever been around from the size of his hands to just everything about him was enormous. And, you know, obviously he kind of he kind of propelled that franchise in Carolina when he was that top pick when they came in as an expansion team. And Dom Capers was the coach then and ended up coaching him in Green Bay as well. But what do you remember about about Peppers? Because the thing that jumped out to me the most was by the end of his career, he'd played, I don't know, 17, 18, 19 seasons, whatever it was. He told me he'd never broken a bone 
and he'd never had a doc- documented concussion. And I just thought to myself, this might be one of the most unique DNA specimens I've ever seen in my life. No doubt, Pep. Love, love Pep. And, and, you know, it's a big deal when you live five years in the Carolinas to play basketball in North Carolina. It, it, it's a special breed. There's literally millions of kids growing up in that region on Tobacco Road that think they can be the next Michael Jordan and play basketball at North Carolina. And here's Pep. And he did. And, and I remember there's two guys that watching them play basketball, knowing that they're football players saying, come on, this is ridiculous. The other was Tony Gonzalez. Tony Gonzalez played yeah. basketball at Cal and was ridiculous. But in terms of Pep, um, you know, really he was, he was quiet, almost, almost an introvert. But this, like you said, this DNA, this skill set, the, the things that you saw him do. And then, uh, Again, when I was at Carolina, I was coaching the tight end. So we'd have to line up and block Pep. And the number one thing that you're always thinking in your head is, don't get him hurt. We need him on Sunday. And and so uh, we used to joke with Jeff King, who's now a scout, when he was constantly going up against Pep. It, with Pep, it was like a cat and a ball of twine. So, <laughs> so often what he was doing, it was just, you know, shoot your hands, discard the, you know, set the edge at the point of attack, all these physically demanding things and pep would make it look so easy it was like a cat with a ball of twine and so it doesn't surprise me that he never broke a bone or that he he's never had a concussion because he made it look so easy and of course the the great ones uh, make, make the even the difficult tasks look like you're just combing your hair and rolling out of bed so pep was that was and we didn't really want to ever hurt him but he made you better because he was so talented and then when you had to play against pep you always had the game plan you know, a little bit like J.J. Watt. You just have to know where he is, and if you have to install a special protection or always have the back go to the side where he's at, independent of if they're trying to move him around. And John Fox did a great job originally, and Pep's one of those guys that, you know, it's not a surprise that he lasted as long as he did. He just was wired right. It's like Daryl Green plays cornerback for the Washington Redskins at the age of 40 and can still run. Right. You know, right. it's just – thank just just – and again, going back to the theme – of the draft, what a what a what a great job by the Carolina Panthers selecting Pep in the with the second overall pick, and that set the edge for a decade. And now the last guy I got to ask you about from Carolina. This is a little bit of a selfish one. My dad, when he got remarried, he married somebody from Ohio, and so that introduced me to Ohio State football. And so Chris Gamble <laughs> was a guy that I loved because yeah. I was amazed by the fact that in you know quote unquote the modern era that this guy was playing both ways. Uh, and starting at receiver, you know, in 2002, he had, I think it was, I got the number here, 31 catches for 499 yards, and he also started every game at cornerback. And so I know that, you know, the NFL is a league of athletes, but was Gamble a special athlete even at the NFL level? So my first introduction to Chris Gamble, of course, was uh, we had played and won that playoff game in 1998 against the Cowboys. And then Jake Plummer calls me up and says, Hey, we got extra tickets for the national championship game. Tenet, uh, sorry, uh, Miami Hurricanes are playing uh, Ohio State. It's going to be a hell of a game. And everyone thought that the the team was uh, Ken Dorsey and right. the Miami Hurricanes, and they were they were stacked. In fact, historic uh, number the, of the NFL AFC, players. Oh my gosh the 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 AFC Rookie of the Year was Clinton Portis, and the NFC Rookie of the Year from the previous year was Jeremy Shockey. Yep. and you could make the argument that they were replaced on their own hurricane roster by better players because uh, Kellen Winslow, the second was coming in at the tight end position behind Chalky. Not only did uh, uh, Willis McGahee be the running back uh, 
and a, a, a Frank Gore was the third string running back at the time, coming off of a knee injury. So unreal, uh, you know. But that was the famous national championship game where uh, they call pass interference. Uh, and extend the game and basically uh, allow Ohio State because of that call to defeat Miami. But Chris Gamble was on that team, and you saw him and his skill set. But he was on the field with uh, a, a guy by the name of Johnson, who was a wide receiver for the Andre Johnson sure. for the Texans for a number of years. So it was a smorgasbord of talent out there, and Chris was one of those guys that was just hanging right with them. And then you come back, fast forward to the Carolina days, and – the, the thing that I remembered about Smitty was Steve Smith was that he would love to go under the one-on-ones and he, he originally would pick on Ken Lucas. Whenever Ken Lucas was up, he'd cut <laughs> the wide receiver line and wear, wear out Ken Lucas. And so it wasn't great for your confidence when you have Steve Smith and then uh, Moosin Muhammad and then Keyshawn Johnson and you, you, you know, the, offensive coaches don't want to admit it, but the, the one-on-one drill where the quarterback isn't getting rushed and every every wide receiver wants to run a double or triple move on a on a corner is impossible to defend. Uh, but that's what I remember more about Chris. It was not any specific games, but just how competitive the one on one line was, and and what a great job of of Chris did. And again, versatile like a lot of these guys coming out of Ohio State, you know, and and they're loaded again this year, and they'll have a lot of names uh, pulled off the board again in this draft, but. Chris was a talented, talented guy, but I remember first seeing him in that national championship game, and then I really remember more in practice than in games uh, going toe-to-toe with all these good receivers. Okay, and now we get to the part of the podcast I was really looking forward to. Not that I haven't had a blast so far, but I am really excited to ask you about that run that you guys had for a few years with the 49ers. So in 2011, sure. you go 13-3 and and reach the NFC title game. In 12, you go 11-4-1 and and you reach the Super Bowl. And in 13, it's 12-4 and and you reach the NFC title game. So... Well, there's a lot of things I want to ask you about, but first we'll start with this. What was it like to go and work for a guy that used to be your pupil when you were in San Diego? <laughs> so Jim had always wanted me to work with him. Ever since our days in Chicago, we had connected. And I just knew that, that Jim was crazy in a really good way. And I knew Jack, his dad, my dad, George Christ, and Jack Harbaugh had been in the Big Ten as assistant coaches. And then Jack had become a head coach in his own right. And then... Even in Chicago, uh, Jim had held out. He wanted to get a better signing bonus the year he was drafted. And so Jack would come over to the meetings, and he would come over to practice in Platteville and then run back to the Motel 6 and give Jim all of the all of the uh, nuts and bolts on the football. And uh, so I'd known the family for a long time. And then we get to San Francisco, uh, and Jim had offered me a position when he was coaching at the University of San Diego we had been together with the chargers and he immediately wanted to become a head coach. He didn't want to go through the, the, the rungs of the ladder that his brother, John had gone through. So he had become a head coach immediately. And then I got a call uh, from the search committee that was hiring uh, Bowlesby was the AD one time Iowa AD at Stanford. And he'd called and wanted to know about Jim. And so Jim offered me a position at Stanford. I said, no. And finally uh, it worked out when Foxy was done in Carolina that I could join Jim. And then I realized that Jim was the perfect fit and the right man at the right time for the organization. Jim's got a lot of swagger and his very first speech to the team, you know, he said, I want to do three things. Number one, uh, I came here to win a Super Bowl. Number two, I'm going to do it my way. And number three, if you don't like it, you can leave. So there was a little bit of Ditka that had uh, 
had had ended up uh, with Jim. And so listening to him uh, talk to the team, I knew we had something good going on. We had a great defense. The guy that we really had to turn around was Alex Smith. Alex, right. we went out for a we went out to the candlestick for one of those uh, uh, off-season OTAs, and they wanted to make it a fan fest where they could get uh, autographs, and everything was supposed to be cool. It was exciting to be in Candlestick, a historic venue. We go out for Pat and Go, and the fans are booing Alex Smith because he had all these expectations of being the first overall uh, choice. But we got Alex to, to play, and, and I think he had had some success but not consistent success. And so uh, uh, it was fun coaching Alex showing up every day. We drafted Cap in the second round after taking Alden Smith in the first round. But we really, that first year, I think we clinched the uh, AFC or the NFC West by like Thanksgiving. So we knew we were going to be in the playoffs. We knew that we were going to host a home playoff game, which is what we did. We ended up getting the bye the last week of the year. And then we had that exciting game against the Saints. I, I thought that, the Saints had beaten the Lions the previous week. They had destroyed the Patriots on a Monday night earlier that year. So that was a big out. And then we went to overtime against the Giants in Candlestick. The punt glanced off of Kyle Williams' foot. And uh, the Giants go to the Super Bowl, and they actually beat the Colts. I'm sorry, they beat the uh, Patriots in that Super Bowl. So we come back the next year. Alex is concussed. We put in Cap. Cap's 10th start was that. Super Bowl right. against the Ravens, and then the third year, uh, again, it seemed like we always uh, played. The Caps' first playoff game was against the Packers. We ran for 181 yards, and then we'd heard that Dom Capers and the Packers spent the whole offseason trying to defend him, so the league scheduled us as the first uh, team to play You know, the, the next year, and then we knocked out Green Bay in the 2013 playoffs. That was the cold game up in Lambeau yep. where we hit a walk-off field goal. But I think over the, it was hard because, um, you know, Jim Jim's like on a big boat and you go through the, uh, the channels in northern Wisconsin and it has a buoy that says slow, no wake. Jim does not do that. <laughs> Jim does not go slow and he does not create. He always has a wake. And so uh, we had a lot of fun, but by the time we had won, I remember – uh, walking under the goalpost at Lambeau after that win when Phil Dawson kicked the game winner and you kind of nodded your head and said, okay, we're going to Carolina. But our arch nemesis was Pete Carroll and the Seattle Seahawks. Sure. So when we beat Carolina, Cam Newton's first playoff game, and they came out, and that was fun for me having spent five years in Carolina. But I remember beating Carolina when they wore their black-on-black uniforms, and I remember walking off the field. There was no joy. There was not the same... Uh, mood uh, that we had maybe when we hit Vernon on the post uh, for the touchdown in the Saints, which was our first playoff win. It was okay, finally. We're going up to Seattle and we're playing Seattle just like the way we thought we would. And then we went up there, and that was, of course, the one where the Sherman tipped the ball. It became intercepted with 20 seconds left, and he had the famous interview with Aaron Andrews at the end. It was just toe to toe, and, uh, and it was hard because, uh, you know, Jim wanted to extend his contract. He wanted to be paid like a, like a top coach. Michigan was struggling, and they, they were making overtures to Jim. Uh, you know, Jim didn't want to go. He's old school, so he didn't want to go into the season and continue to negotiate for his contract. So he basically went into the 2014 season without a contract. 
um, extension. So uh, it, it, it was such a great run. I think we had 55 wins in four years. We went to three straight NFC championship games. But there's always something that feels like you left something on the table. And right. it, it broke up so quickly. You know, I think that's the sad part. And that's I'm happy for the Niners to see their success with Kyle Shanahan. They went back to the Super Bowl. But it's amazing to me to know that, you know, Kyle is, I think, 24 and uh, – 22 and 24, or 22 and 24, you know, 24 and 26, whatever his overall record is, because they had some injuries, especially with Garoppolo at the quarterback position. So they've, you know, done a good job of kind of turning the franchise over and 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 being there. But we won a lot of games. We had a lot of fun doing it. Like I said, we were the we we were the brats that never slowed down in the in the channel. We always created the wake, and you know, and and yet. Um, you know, someday we'll look back on it. Uh, hopefully, we'll have one of those reunions in ten or twenty years, and everyone will have the same kind of laughs we had going through it at the time. But you knew it wasn't going to last forever. It never does in the National Football League. And so, uh, we we knew in 2014, uh, you know, we lost a lot of good players. And then in 2015, when they when Jim left to go to Michigan and they named Tom Sula coach, I think we lost seven first round draft picks that didn't that no longer played for the Niners. Uh, Patrick Willis retired. Justin Smith retired. Alvin Smith uh, was suspended for the entire year. Vernon Davis ended up uh, being traded to the Denver Broncos. So you, you can't lose players. It's the opposite of the draft. You can't lose players and then feel like you're going to be a better team coming through. And then, you know, at some point in time, the organization realized after the you know one-and-done year of both Tom Sula and Chip Kelly that it's a major rebuild. So they got the right guy in there, and John Lynch is the GM. Uh, they've got Kyle Shannon in there. They immediately gave him six-year contracts, which told the fan base, hey, this is going to take a while. And they caught lightning in a bottle. They did a nice job this year and got back to the Super Bowl and, and made it interesting. You mentioned uh, you know, toward the beginning that quarterback is still one of the most fun and challenging positions to scout even you know, all these years after you've been in the league and everything. So when, uh, when Kaepernick was at Nevada, what did, what did the organization really like about him? And, and what did, you, did you expect that, you know, that little three-year run would be as dynamic as it was for him in the offense? Well, first off, uh, you, know, you have both the measurables and the intangibles. And one of the great things moving forward and being in the Bay Area and seeing the Warriors, we know in the NBA how the three-point line has radically changed the game. In fact, I, I looked it up when the Warriors were coming down on three-on-one fast breaks and Curry or Thompson or even Draymond Green would pull up behind the arc. When you first saw that in 2012 and 2013, you're saying, what are you doing? they got a, they got a layup. I know, go to the bucket. Uh, <laughs> but uh, there was an old Milwaukee Lincoln player uh, by the name of downtown Freddie Brown. Fred Brown played high school in Milwaukee and he ended up playing for the Seattle Supersonics but the first year that they had the NBA three-point line he led the league in in field goal percentage makes at over 40 percent and he and in the 80 game season he shot 88 threes Jeez. <laughs> now in today's perspective the Houston Rockets I think when Harden last year uh, was playing in an overtime game they had 70 attempts one team, 70 attempts in one game. Yeah, just a little different. <laughs> just a little different. So, so we know that the game of the NBA has changed, and, and the math is real simple. And why is this important to the quarterbacking? Well, there's got to be a measurable that's good for the quarterbacks. And when we went to San Francisco, Bill Walsh and Bill Parcells had talked about the fact that, um, you know, you need to have these parameters. You need to 
start 30 games and win 23. You needed to have a 60% completion percentage, and your touchdown-interception ratio would be 2 to 1. So they kind of said, if you didn't have those parameters, take them off the board. We want to go find the, the guys that do have those parameters. Well, ironically, all the years that Parcells was a coach, head coach of the Giants, they chose seven quarterbacks, including Jeff Hostetler. Not one of them had all of those attributes, <laughs> measurables. <laughs> uh, but we know that college football, like the NBA, has changed with the air raid, with RPOs, with those pop passes. So you see a guy go in motion right in front of the quarterback, yep. he catches it and immediately pops it forward. Well, what does that have to do with completion percentage? That's that's a glorified uh, – uh, as we used to say when we were playing backyard football, that's a forward lateral. Yeah, it's the it's the easiest <laughs> touchdown passes that quarterbacks can throw now. But uh, but I did a deep dive study and realized that the things that are still true, whether you're running an air raid offense or you're at Army or uh, Navy and you're running the wishbone, is the most successful quarterbacks finish drives with touchdowns. So the the basketball analogy, if I'm take six three-point shots, and I make three. That's 50% from behind the arc. That's pretty good. So three times three, that's nine points. Well, to beat nine points, I'm going to have to make five two-point shots to make ten. And I would say that you listen to Mark Cuban and you listen to all these NBA guys, the Rockets guy, analytics tells you that even your big men now, your Frank Kaminsky's, have to make the three-point shots. It's just there's just too much profit to be made, and so they look at that as a as a determining factor to whether a guy can play in the NBA. In the NFL, the single greatest stat that you can achieve is points per drive. So I'm at I'm Russell Wilson coming out, or I'm Colin Kaepernick coming out in, two, in the 2011 draft. Cap came out. He averaged over three points per drive. So that meant that wow. Uh, Every time they got the ball, it means you're not turning the ball over. It means that you're finishing not with field goals but with touchdowns. touchdowns and, yep. so, uh, and so that's become two things. Uh, a lot of times you think, hey, I'm going to go to a pro day and watch how a guy in super slow motion spirals the football. He's got a strong arm. Or Jamarcus Russell, he threw it 70 yards. Or Kyle Bowler, all these guys who had arm talent. That's another great line. But – Football is 11-on-11 11 11 football, and sometimes you have to hit the fullback in the flat in, with accuracy and location so that he can turn up field and get additional yards after the catch. And so uh, we updated that old Parcells and Walsh thing. Instead of starting twenty three or starting 30 games and winning 23, you just want to win really 7 out of 10 of your games. You want to have a – touchdown interception ratio of at least three to one now because we've been throwing like you just said those pop passes or rpos are just too easy to execute it puts the defense in a bind but the two to one ratios become three to one and then you'd like to have a points per drive uh really at at 2.75 or above so that again a guy like colin kaepernick a guy who would finish drives those were the measurable things that we knew and then the immeasurable things that we knew uh Jim Harbaugh was coming from Stanford where he had Andrew Luck. And Andrew was really one of those guys that hit all of those markers that Walsh and Parcells talked about. But he came back from the Manning Academy and said, you know, I like that Nevada quarterback. That Colin Kaepernick is really a good quarterback. And he's even a good guy. And then um, he, Jim really liked using the uh, – and really liked how smart Cap was. Cap was one of those guys that 
scored extremely well in the Wonderlick test and sure. could absorb things. And really, they were the first ones to use that pistol offense, and which we incorporated. And so when uh, Jim had heard about how Kappa had done uh, Andrew Luck's first game against Cal, they lost. And then they watched the next year as Colin Kaepernick hung 55 running the pistol on, on the Cal defense. And so there was this fascination. There was the, That was the aha moment, I think, for Jim, that he liked Cap, was that here's Cap kind of in the, the same region and uh, hanging 55 on Cal, running this kind of creative offense where you can pull it and disconnect. It's really the same things that uh, Lamar Jackson's running now with Greg Roman. And so he just saw this confluence of information this confluence of stuff, and we thought we could get him in the second round. The other guy we liked, uh, because he was a match to Alex Smith, was Andy Dalton. Okay. But right before our pick, Cincinnati took Andy Dalton, and that left Colin Kaepernick on the board. And, um, you know, he came in and wanted to play right away and was kind of chafing to play, and then we had a couple of instances his second year where we had certain packages for Cap to run the pistol, and we took – Alex off that didn't make Alex real happy that you know why are you putting him in there I can run the I can run the pistol I right right uh, so eventually and then he, here's Alex you know we trade him to Kansas City and the same thing happened for Alex he he's playing as as well as he's played his entire career in Kansas City and they find a young kid by the name of Mahomes they trade up in the draft they take Patrick Mahomes they let him sit for a year and to Alex's everlasting credit he he helped that kid Mahomes taught him how to approach the game and the rest is history yeah I mean that's one of the things about Alex Smith is you always hear these stories about how gracious of a teammate he was because in in two different situations he had to help young guys along that were there to essentially if not take his job entirely at least challenge him for it so he's one of those guys that you know at least on a on a personal level you always feel like he he kind of embodied the the true professional that you know players and coaches talk about you know what I mean you know, he was the first overall pick. Uh, Packer fans and everyone else know that you know Aaron Rodgers desperately wanted to go to the Niners, who had the first overall pick, but they chose Alex, who was only 20 at the time. He said he didn't know anything. He was only four years removed from getting his driver's license, he told me. So <laughs> he's kind of thrown into the middle of it. But to his everlasting credit, that was back before the uh, draft picks were slotted. So Alex, you know, just by the virtue of being the first overall pick, got somewhere north of $60 million guaranteed. But what I loved about Alex was he just wanted to get better at football. He wanted to play better quarterback. He had heard all of the, the boos from Pat and Joe from his own team to the speculation that they chose the wrong guy. And I think that was the most satisfying part of that whole run in San Francisco is he took a guy like Alex and, and let him have success. And I remember we actually played that uh, playoff game where we had Vernon on the post on the Saturday and then, uh, the Giants were playing the Packers on the Sunday game, and uh, we were downstairs, kind of waiting to see in the, in the facility uh, who might our next opponent be. And I went downstairs to get a quick workout, in, and there's Alex Smith. I said, "Alex, what, what are you doing down here?" He said, "I'm so excited about what happened yesterday, but my house is full of well wishers. My house is full of my in-laws and relatives, and it's chaos over there." So I came over here to just get a little peace and quiet. And I said, Alex, that was an unbelievable throw. He said, can I borrow 20 bucks? I'm going to go over to Carl Jr.'s and get a burger, but I don't have any money. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. Well, And so that's, that's the kind of guy that Alex was, was that, you know, 
as, as happy as he was for his personal success, you know, it's still a team sport, and Alex always put the team first. I was just so happy for him. Well, I'll, I'll get you out of here on this question. You know, like I said, this will come out after the draft, and by the time people listen to this, we'll know where everybody ends up. But regardless of where players in this year's draft end up, are there any guys that you're really curious and eager to see in the fall just to see how they do based on, you know, some of the projects and things you've been putting together? Anybody that caught your eye as an interesting prospect? You know, starting with the quarterback position, I think everyone understands that Joe Burrow's going to go first off the board. Tua has been a little bit more polarizing because of his injuries. Uh, He's on such a talented team. Uh, But, you know, that'll be something that'll play itself out in the first day. Uh, After that, you know, a lot of people are all over the board on Justin Herbert. Uh, Big athlete. A lot of of upside there. Um, But, you know, sometimes... Sometimes he's pedestrian in his production, just kind of average production. Sure. But personally, personally, I'm, I, I can't wait to see where Jonathan Taylor goes. We talked about how he burst on the scene in Wisconsin. Uh, you know, I think my brother Paul did a great job along with Jonathan. He worked on his pass game where he, he wanted to demonstrate some receiving skills. But, uh, you know, what is the value of a running back? It used to be that, you know, you didn't want to take a guy too, too early in the running back. So it's really running back by committee. You know, Fournette went four. Christian McCaffrey went eight a couple of years ago. Zeke Elliott. But I think that uh, hope. I hope that Jonathan goes off the board earlier than most people think. The other great story for those that follow Wisconsin football was the Quentin Cephas um, uh, scenario, where he came back after missing a year and a half of football and uh, really had a great year. And and Zach Bond, another Milwaukee kid, uh, who kind of came out of the blue as an edge rusher in the mold of uh, T.J. Watt. But those, those are the personal stories that you want to watch. Sure. But it's, it's exciting. Fans, fans, remember, we always tell the kids, uh, I was working with a tight end up at Oregon, and I said, remember, the one team that took you liked you better than the other 31. So always be appreciative wherever you go. And uh, there, it, there's always a lot of fate involved. But at the end of the day, you hope for all these kids who've worked hard and realizing the dream that this kind of awkward – uh, by remote control, the joy will still be the same. I think the family reactions will be great. Uh, so I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. So am I. It's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, Jeep, I can't thank you enough for taking so much of your time. This was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. It was an absolute blast for me. And I know that there was a lot of moments where I laughed. So I'm sure fans are really going to enjoy <laughs> listening to this. Thanks so much, Jeep. You're welcome, Michael. Good luck with your venture. So there you have it, a conversation with longtime NFL assistant coach Jeep Christ. I hope that you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. There were so many stories and anecdotes that I hadn't heard before, and Jeep, as you know by now, is an awesome storyteller, so I can't thank him enough for his time. For those of you who haven't subscribed to the show, I encourage you to do so. It's available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. As always, if you're listening on an Apple device, I encourage you to leave a star rating, leave a review, preferably five stars if you like the show, and help us build the audience, help us grow the program so we can continue to have fun guests each and every week. So until the next episode of this podcast, I hope you have a terrific rest of your day, a terrific rest of your week, and I will talk to you again soon.